Here's a riddle for you. Name something Presidents Obama, Trump, and Biden have in common. I'll give you one answer. None has appeared to understand the theological premises that motivate such groups as Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Islamic State, nor those that drive the rulers of the Islamic Republic of Iran, nor have they had clarity about the thinking of those brave Muslims who oppose such interpretations of Islam. I'm looking forward to discussing these and related issues with three eminent scholars. Gilles Capel has authored more than 20 academic books on contemporary Islam, the Arab world, and Muslims in Europe, translated into numerous languages. A tenured professor at Paris Sciences et Lettres University, his latest essay, The Prophet and the Pandemic, From the Middle East to Atmospheric Jihadism, just released in French, has topped the bestseller list and is currently being translated into English and a half dozen other languages. An excerpt, The Murder of Samuel Paty, is in the spring issue of Liberty's Journal. Bernard Heichel is a professor of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University. His research focuses on the political and social tensions that arise from questions about religious identity and authority, with a particular emphasis on Islam, history, and the countries of the Arabian Peninsula. His books include Saudi Arabia in Transition and Revival and Reform in Islam. And Ruel Marcorect, a disciple of the late great Bernard Lewis, is a former Middle Eastern specialist at the CIA's Directorate of Operations and currently is a senior fellow at FDD. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay, I'm going to start with a, with a very wide aperture. Almost 20 years ago, when the attacks of 9-11 were carried out, what was what was your reaction then, as scholars of Islam and 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 the, and the Middle East? Maybe Bernard, tell us first. Did you think, yep, I, I knew this was coming, or oh my God, there were policies that we could have taken that would have prevented this, or was it something something else entirely? No, I mean, firstly, I was thank you for having me, and I was in New York at the time, and I witnessed the the attacks live, and when they did happen, I uh, felt. Uh, that, yes, uh, this was a bit of deja vu all over again, uh, in the sense that AI had thought that they would try again to attack those buildings as they had done in, uh, earlier, and, um, and that this was going to be a spectacular victory uh, for them, at least symbolically uh, a victory. Um, so it was deeply disappointing, in particular because, if you remember, uh, President Bush uh, uh, w had been uh, elected and came to office in January of that year, and much of the conversation until 9/11 was about um, the threat from space and how we had to resume um, 
you know, the satellites and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and there was no attention at all given to uh, political Islam and Islamist and jihadist movements. Um, and moreover, also in the intelligence community, there was a very strong emphasis on uh, diminishing human intelligence and relying much more on technology, all of which I thought would be disastrous for the United States. Jill, mm -hmm. same question. Well, actually, a few years before 9-11, I had spent a year in, uh, in New York as a visiting professor. And uh, much to my dismay, uh, no one was interested in anything Islamic at the time anymore. Uh, no one was learning Arabic. And this was perceived as, you know, the, 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 the issue was settled. Uh, there had been a peace between Israel and, and Egypt, and who cared? And uh, to uh, my... Uh, uh, my, I, I was, I was sort of uh, worried that uh, no one was really interested in what was happening in the in the Middle East at the time. Uh, no one was reading the books, and uh, no one took the ideology of uh, Islamists seriously. And when nine eleven happened, actually, I was in Paris, and uh, uh, at the time we were not really concerned from Europe because. Al-Qaeda had focused on America, what they call the faraway enemy, Al-Adu Al-Ba'id. But then ISIS would come, and ISIS would stop focusing on America because it was too far away, actually, and they would focus on Europe. And mm -hmm. then we would be in the middle of the thing. Go ahead, Ruel, a few words on this. Yeah, I mean, I was wandering around Yemen and uh, Afghanistan before 9-11. In the CIA uh, at this point. No, I was out. I was, out. I was actually working uh, for Talk Magazine and for 60 Minutes. And uh, I was actually trying to uh, smuggle clandestine cameras into bin Laden's bases uh, north, of, north of Kabul. That was an unsuccessful mission on my part. Uh, but it became clear to me, certainly as I was wandering around the battlefields outside of the Panjshir Valley and uh, Masood, uh, the great Tajik leader had just pushed back an offensive by the Taliban. We were going through all the ruined buildings. And uh, <clears throat> it was clear to me just by the graffiti that you could see everywhere of uh, brotherhood between uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban uh, that uh, it, you know, we were at, we were just waiting for another hit, that it was, it was going to come and that, uh, those two forces were joined at the hip. And it does, uh, it is a bit amusing that uh, certain uh, senior US officials today who do have a personal memory of that time are now telling us that there is a, uh, al uh, a split between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, which uh, I find mysterious because the Taliban are about ready to be victorious. I mean, they are going to kick the Americans out of Afghanistan. So uh, I think it's going to be a triumphant moment uh, for them. Yeah, let, let, let's uh, focus on that for a second, because, Bernard, you also said that 9-11 was a spectacular victory uh, for the Tal uh, for uh, al-Qaeda. Based on what Ruel is saying, based on the, my reading, when we have the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in September, on um, which date, for some reason that I find totally mysterious, President Biden says that's the day all troops will be, uh, American troops will be out. That will be seen as another spectacular victory for Al Qaeda 
And for the Taliban, is there any question that that's that's simply the truth of the situation? Bernard Stark, but I want to hear all of you on this. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely the truth. And you have to remember that um, Al-Qaeda's uh, boast is that they defeated the Soviets with the, with the, with the Mujahideen. And so one empire was defeated in Afghanistan in, in 88-89. And now you see uh, 20 years after the Americans are in, are, they're going to be defeated again. And that's how it's going to be marketed and framed. Also, I think, just to pick up on what Ruel was saying, is that Al-Qaeda formally acknowledges the leader of the Taliban as their uh, commander of, their faith, of the faithful. I mean, he is the equivalent of their caliph. Uh, so so mm-hmm. theologically and, and, and also politically, they are you know, structurally tied to the Taliban. They're not, they, they can't be seen as, a, as an entirely separate movement. Um, and so I'm not sure whether the Americans understand this, uh, but they should. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'll go to you, I guess I'll go to you again, Jill, on this, because the, it just strikes me as astonishing that somebody in the Biden administration, some of one of his advisors, didn't say to him, look, if you're going to get out, you're going to get out. I understand the last thing you want to do is have it coincide with the 20th anniversary um, because that just reinforces that after 20 years, you've done a, we've wavered, we've failed, and our, and Al Qaeda as well as the Taliban have defeated the United States just as they defeated the Soviet Union. And by the way, not just coincidentally, two years later the Soviet Union was to collapse. Well, Al Qaeda and the and the Taliban are not exactly the same thing because Al Qaeda is not there anymore. Uh, Zawahiri is in, uh, you know, uh, retirement someplace, and no one cares about him anymore. Uh, the Taliban are an indigenous uh, Afghan Islamist and jihadi movement, and this is another issue. Now, uh, whether uh, there's going to be a U.S. Marine who's going to wrap the U uh, the U.S. banner under his shoulder and get in the last helicopter from Kabul, I mean, sort of uh, reminding people of what happened in Saigon in 1975 is, is really at issue. But I, I, I believe that the Biden administration, for what I understand from, uh, from old Europe, as they said, uh, is, uh, is that um, Biden's uh, Middle East uh, policy is aiming at sort of uh, having a global deal with Iran, and fixing it all so that they consider that the, the Afghanistan issue is not going to be very important. That the, the fact that there's a U.S. pullout from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover will not be used by the Russians, by the Turks, by the Iranians for their own benefit. And this is the, the, this is the, the, the big issue, the big sort of catch 22. Of the, of the Biden administration policy in the Middle East today. And uh, as of now, we do not know what is to happen. And uh, Well, I, mean, I, I would just add on that. I mean, there have been three administrations in a row that have sort of yeah. dreamed of walking away from the, the Middle East, either to pivot to Asia or just to, you know, leave the Muslims be. Uh, and the Middle East, the greater Middle East, has a way of, of pulling us uh, back. So, uh, uh, I mean, I do remember, uh, 
personally watching, uh, you know, the Afghan operations and the Afghan task force shrink to nothingness inside of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, and everybody saying it, it didn't really matter. Uh, I I just suspect that it might matter, and I also think on Al Qaeda uh, as an institution and organization, if you can think of something that could possibly resuscitate it and give it a bit of a spree. Uh, the Americans pulling out of Afghanistan. And, and if then the Americans completely fail to support the opposition to the Pashtuns, to the Taliban, if they fail to support the Uzbeks, they fail to support the Tajiks, they fail to support the Shiite Hazara, uh, you know, the triumph of the Taliban, I think, is inevitable because the Pakistanis aren't going to stop supporting them. So it's a, it's a recipe for a mess, uh, I think the Biden administration possibly might pull back just because of the visuals that you just alluded to, uh, Vietnam and Saigon, such a thing is conceivable uh, in Kabul, perhaps not immediately, but certainly in the not too distant future. You know, I want to just keep with you for one second on this, because General Petraeus, who was, among other things, head of the CIA for a time, uh, opposes this pullout. Again, he's not saying we should have 100,000 or 150,000 troops again. We have 2,500 now. I think he'd say what you want to have is a platform there to hold Kabul and the provincial capitals. The Taliban is uh, in the countryside, but it doesn't hold any major urban areas. Uh, and it can be prevented with a re relatively small force um, from, we believe, from doing that. But also because he would say, or Petraeus has said, Having a forward deployed platform in Afghanistan is useful for that purpose so that the Taliban doesn't completely take over, so that Al-Qaeda doesn't have a large area in which to train and plan and, and all that. So we haven't been entirely defeated. Maybe it's somewhat of a stalemate, but also a platform because there are more than 20 other jihadist organizations in that part of the sort of Indo-Pacific region most of those organizations you guys know well. Most Americans haven't heard the names of, of what they are. Some are based in Pakistan, some are based elsewhere. But if you're going to suppress them in a way rather than let them flourish, you, you can't do that from Fort Benning and Fort Bragg. And you, you need to be closer to the action for the purpose of gathering intelligence and then hitting them where they are while they're plotting and planning and not be letting them be comfortable. It's a long question, Ruel. But well, I mean, I, I would just say something quickly, then I'd, I'd pass to, to, to Gilles and Bernard on this, that, I mean, I think the Americans are, or at least the Biden administration is dreaming of sort of going into a European mode of counterterrorism. That is where the emphasis is put on defense, not offense. I mean, the, uh, that uh, now obviously the French uh, do reach out a bit and, and, and touch folks, but not nearly to the extent that the Americans have. And I think that's where they want to go. They want to test to see whether defensive counterintelligence, which of course costs a lot less, uh, can provide sufficient results uh, in that the damage that we might sustain from terrorist attacks is, uh, you know, bearable. Uh, so I think that's where they where where they're headed, uh, and you know we'll have to see whether it works or not. Yeah, Gilbert, I wanted to chime in on that, or I've not got plenty more things to talk about. I mean, you know, Biden in his speech, if you listen carefully to his speech to Congress just a couple of days ago, you know, mentioned that you know there's always going to be an over the horizon American uh, 
capability. Uh, I'm not sure what he means by that and what in practice that would entail. I mean, presumably drone strikes, um, but I, I'm not sure that's going to stop the Taliban from taking over. And of the other groups that you mentioned, um, you know, the Islamic State is also in Afghanistan. It's not just, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda. So we'll see. I mean, this could be a replay. Um, you know, we'll see. And of course, we also have another player here that wasn't around uh, in, in, in as big a way, and that's China. That is. And China in Pakistan, as you know, with the Belt and Road in it, essentially turning Pakistan into a client state against India and for projection into the Indian Ocean. Um, and, and I imagine the Chinese will have their own uh, views and plans for uh, Afghanistan. And, and that's something I can not really talk about because I'm not a China expert. But I imagine that's an element also to factor in. You know, another area where where jihadists are likely to be encouraged by this, and they're likely to be encouraged, I think, as you said, real anywhere in the world, but might be also um, West Africa, um, where the French have been doing a reasonable job, it seems to me, Jill, you can correct me if I'm wrong, of suppressing the various jihadi groups. But what hurts them is they're, they're, they've got about 5,000 troops in the Sahel region, their headquarters are in N'Djamena, which is the capital of Chad. And the, the person they've been relying on has been the, the, the president of Chad for something like 30 years, Idris Deby, which, <laughs> a little digression, interestingly enough, I knew when he was a young officer back in 1983, I actually went out into the contested regions of, of, of northeastern Chad with him and his troops to where they were they wanted to show journalists which is what I was at the time that uh, that they were fighting a real war against Libyan-backed forces. Now uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, President of France, went to, was the only Western leader who went to the, the, uh, Idris Deby's funeral. And I think there's a, a danger that if that if, if Chad melts down, which it absolutely could after his death, Idris Deby has been the, the main supporter of French policy and French action in the Middle East, where there these five thousand French troops. Are based, and by the way, there's about a, people don't know this, but there's about a thousand American troops in about ten different bases in in various places in West Africa, also supporting this effort and supporting such things as drones. You talk about drones; it's hard to do drones from very far away. You need the intelligence if you're going to target with any precision. Jill, you want to talk a little bit about France and and, and West Africa and what's going on there? Well, actually, uh, France had to go to Mali because, uh, you know, after uh, Kazafi was ousted, uh, then a number of Kazafi's mercenaries who had looted his uh, huge arsenals in Libya, and his mercenaries were mainly from uh, sub-Saharan Africa, went back home. And uh, many of them had... Uh, uh, embraced the jihadist ideology, and then they they attacked uh, northern Mali, and then Timbuktu and other places uh, started to fall. So uh, then Hollande had uh, to finish the job that uh, Sarkozy and Cameron started in uh, in Libya with Obama leading from behind, as the, the famous uh, phrase goes, and then uh, send send the foreign legion. 
so this was a harsh battle. Uh, the jihadists were uh, were repelled, and the integrity of Mali was restored. But nevertheless, it's uh, it's it's an enemy which uh, starts again all the time. It is extremely tiring. This is something that uh, has to do with the security of Europe as a whole. And uh, and the French are very much alone there. I mean, there is American help in terms of refueling and, and everything. But there, this is an issue where, you know, uh, Rule mentioned uh, the difference between, uh, between offensive and defensive action in terms of jihadism. Uh, uh, the French have been on the offensive in uh, in uh, in Mali and uh, you know uh, fortunately it went well for some time but then you know just like Afghanistan you have to deal with a corrupt state corrupt institutions and uh, and therefore uh, this this is um, this is not giving the results that you expect now uh, i wanted to follow up on that because you know you mentioned that macron went to idris deby's funeral and on his way back, he had to deal with the the, the latest jihadist. The day he was coming back, with the latest uh, jihadist attack in France. You know, we had uh, three people who were stabbed uh, to death. One who was decapitated. Uh, teacher, uh, uh, middle school teacher Samuel Paty uh, last October, and uh, something that developed into a new form of jihadism. And uh, uh, on the on the weekend that uh, Macron came back from from Chad, we had another guy, a Tunisian, who had come to France ten years ago uh, as an undocumented immigrant, who then uh, was uh, got his papers, and uh, a few months later decided to to stab this poor uh, lady who was working as a clerk at a police precinct uh, uh, in the outskirts of Paris. Now, uh, this is a new issue in terms of, of jihadism, of the threat that we're facing. Like when we mentioned the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS, they were organizations that were different. I mean, uh, Al-Qaeda was a sort of pyramidal, top-down uh, uh, organization. Uh, ISIS was more sort of a network-based, uh, bottom-up system. Now we're facing a threat which is much more significant and much more difficult to deal with, which is what I called uh, atmospheric or atmosphere jihadism. On the one hand, we have what we call here entrepreneurs of wrath or entrepreneurs of rage who flood the internet with uh, attacks, uh, you know, uh, slander uh, against bad Muslims, against infidels and the like. They don't ask that those people be killed, but they sort of target them. And then you have other people who have been socialized in the jihadist milieu or not, who uh, uh, went to some radical mosque, or we don't know. And then suddenly they take it on themselves to implement what they think is uh, the death penalty that those people uh, deserve. And uh, then we have a major problem here because usually the intelligence agencies, you know, when they catch someone, they try to they search his phone and then they try to see who gave the orders and whatever, and they sort of uh, uh, try to to identify uh, the, the whole network. Now we have jihadism without a network. 
Mm. We have this atmosphere. It's a sort of viral phenomenon. So the COVID-19 of jihadism, if you want. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the atmospheric contamination. And, and uh, how do we face this issue? Uh, and this is uh, what uh, President Macron tried to do with his uh, uh, famous or infamous, depending how you see it, a speech on the October the 2nd on Islamist separatism that was, you know, attacked by Erdogan and the others uh, and dubbed as Islamophobic, which actually uh, focused on whether there is a culture, uh, a subculture, if you want, of uh, a sort of a breakaway from Western societies by people. Gilles, could I, could I ask you a question there? And I'd sure. say the question also goes to, to Bernard on this, that uh, do you think, for example, that Saudi Arabia's uh, efforts, uh, I mean, MBS's efforts to uh, diminish Saudi support uh, for uh, Wahhabism abroad uh, is going to have any significant impact on uh, jihadism that we see in, in Europe or, or elsewhere? Are we beyond that now, that actually Saudi efforts, though very important about for generating uh, Wahhabism's growth, that Saudi efforts now are, are largely irrelevant to the way this plays out? So, so, uh, so first, there's no question that the Saudis are no longer in the business of um, spending money on the promotion of Salafism or Wahhabism or, frankly, any form of Islam. Uh, they, they, they are uh, MBS in particular, and I know this just from India, for instance, where a number of Indians who, in the past, would would have received money to build mosques or to build madrasas and schools and that sort of thing. Uh, come up high and dry. I mean, whenever they ask the Saudis for money through the embassy, for instance, uh, they will be given nothing. Um, what the Saudis have spent in India, for in again, for instance, is on you know building a hospital or a wing of the hospital, but they won't put any more money in Islam. Uh, I think there will be a long-term effect uh, for that, uh, for the for stopping that kind of funding. But you have to remember that that slack has been taken up largely by Qatar and by Turkey. And mm -hmm. this comes out very nicely in, 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 the, in, in Gilles' book and also in the essay that came out in Liberties, where he shows you know, that the Turks are very, very uh, you know, engaged and active in spreading not necessarily Salafism, but certainly a form of muscular Islamism that, is also, that also has violence embedded in it or at least the potential for violence embedded in it. Um, so, so I don't, you know, I, I think, so in other words, you know, the Cold War context in which the Saudis were spending money on promoting Islam as an ideology, as a political ideology against communism and against leftist uh, Arab nationalism, that's gone. And it will have an effect because there's less money in, in it. Uh, but that said, um, there's still some money in it. There's still some state patronage coming from other sources and until and uh, unless we end all of that, um, you will not see a serious decline uh, in in uh, in Islamism uh, because the, you know there there are careers to be made still in Islamism, and that has to stop. Uh, and I think states and private funds funding of that uh, kind of effort has to be seriously uh, not just regulated but stopped. I mean, it, it doesn't take a lot of money, does it? Or because 
uh, I mean, certainly institutionally, uh, I mean, Al-Qaeda was getting along with a pretty shoestring budget. I mean, uh, after they failed to take down the USS uh, Sullivan's in Yemen, uh, you know, they, they sank their own skiff. Uh, you know, they actually went and uh, uh, lifted the skiff out of the water yeah. in the port because they didn't have enough money uh, to ha- ha- to buy another engine. And uh, so they, they needed to get it back. I mean, you're right in the sense, I mean, when we're talking about specific terrorist organizations, definitely Al-Qaeda, you know, allegedly spent only 500000 on the 9-11 attacks and they got a tremendous return on their investment. Um, I'm, I'm talking more about the atmospherics that that Gilles that, that, that you know mentions because again, if you look at Gilles' work, um, you see that there's agency, there are individuals, there are mosques, there are institutions, there are networks. So it's not about it. It also involves you know building all of that infrastructure that's human as well as institutional. And I think for that you do need uh, you need you do need funding, and you need, do need state sponsorship and support. You know, uh, if you you look at what happened this uh, this summer, because of COVID nineteen, uh, the Saudis decided they they would not have the the worldwide Hajj or you know pilgrimage, and uh, so there are no photos to be shown. Uh, you know about the strength of Islam, two million. Uh, 2.5 million people gathered together. Uh, and uh, the Saudis did that also because also they wanted to show that they were good pupils of the World uh, Health Organization, but because they had seen what happened in Iran before, where the mullahs could not afford to uh, not to allow people to go to the pilgrimage uh, or the shrines of the saints and whatever, because they depend on it politically. And that sort of made of Iran a super cluster of, of COVID. So what happened? This created a sort of vacuum, you know, the fact that there were no there was no one at the pilgrimage. And this is the time what when Erdogan decided to re-Islamize Islamize Saint Sophia or Hagia Sophia mm. on the 24th of July. And uh, there you had the new caliph, you had the new guy who said, just like Khomeini did in 1989, after the infamous uh, Valentine's Day fatwa of uh, the 14th of February, 1989. Hey, I am the one, I'm the herald and the hero of the Muslim world. The Saudis actually don't deliver. And uh, I'm, I'm the new guy. And uh, in Europe, we're particularly uh, worried by the fact that Muslim brothers are now, um, uh, most of them are in, um, in Turkey, uh, refugees from Egypt and everywhere. In that there is a European policy of uh, of Turkey in order to send Muslim brothers to control mosques in uh, in Europe, in Germany, in France, in the Netherlands, and the like. There's there's a lot of worry about that, and uh, and this is where where things are 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 changing. You know, I mean, the Saudis, uh, the Saudi government definitely is not interested in that. Mohammed bin Salman is is not into that anymore. Uh, whatever one thinks of him uh, at the end of the day. Uh, but then there is another thing which is boosting uh, political Islam, a political Islam which is not necessarily jihadi, but which is part and parcel of the atmospherics. And like, for instance, I had the possibility, I had the chance to to look at the Facebook 
wall of the last murderer in France. The, uh, you know, the guy who, the Tunisian guy who stabbed this uh, uh, clerk at um, in Rambouillet, in the outskirts of Paris, in the police precinct. Uh, it was it 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 goes back to 20, 2011. You know, he was a Tunisian, and he you know he praises the Nahda in Tunisia. He praises the political Islam parties, what we call the Islamo-leftist groups in France. He praises Erdogan a lot. Uh, he there is nothing violence in it. I mean, there is no no ideology. He doesn't say we have to stab so and so. But then. This, those atmospherics are set in place. And then the guy stops communicating and goes and stabs uh, the lady and uh, while he is listening to Anashid in his earphones and, uh, and, and the like. So th- this, is, this is the challenge we're facing now. We're, we're facing a, a new dimension of jihadism, uh, which is not uh, or, um, based on the, on the old organization of yesteryear. Like we had Al-Qaeda, which was a sort of Leninist jihadism, if you wish. It was mm. centralized and whatever. Then you had this network-based thing, which was ISIS. Now we have, a, we have another type of challenge. Europe definitely is being the, 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 the first, um, uh, the, the first um, uh, place where this is being experimented. But I believe that America is, is going to be targeted late uh, in, in the near future. So, and this is something you have to prepare for. Now, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, um, if America is perceived as weakened, as uh, you know, being expelled from Afghanistan, this is, of course, going to boost the morale of all those guys, not only of the jihadists in general, but all, you know, this this atmospherics of jihadism. And this is a major issue. And uh, I wonder whether uh, the, the present administration has taken that into consideration. And uh, de- everything probably depends on how they will bring Iran back into, into, the, into the, the international community, if they manage to, to sort of uh, convince the Iranians that ca- they cannot play the Afghan card against them. And after all, the Taliban uh, just hate the Shias even more than they hate Americans, maybe. But um, so this is quite unpredictable. This is part and parcel of what 2020, you know, uh, in a way meant in the region. I mean, it's sort of of reshuffled uh, the deck of cards. And this is what we as, as scholars of the region have to have to understand in depth, I believe. Well, Ruel, <laughs> I... It's my impression, I think it's yours, that the Islamic Republic of Iran, the rulers of Iran, are no less less Islamist and, in a sense, no less jihadist than al-Qaeda or the Taliban or ISIS. They just are they know better which fork to use at restaurants in Vienna and how to and how to order. Um, and there is a difference, I guess, between Samuel Pati, who you wrote about, Gilles, and that marvelous article in Liberties, which is based on a, a larger essay on atmospheric jihadism that you've written, who, dis, who, who was killed by uh, a Chechen-born Frenchman, I guess one might say, for having insulted Islam by running a class and teaching about free expression 
and saying, I'm going to show some cartoons of Mohammed, but anybody who's offended, please leave the room. That's just fine. No problem. That wasn't okay. You're not, he, he was like saying, you're not allowed to do this. And in a way, he's a, is he not, well, a descendant of Ayatollah Khomeini, who in 1989 said Salman Rushdie's uh, book insults Islam and he should be killed, his translator should be killed, his publisher should be killed. This is an attempt, in other words, to enforce Islamic law in other countries. Um, and this is, and uh, well, you talk about this, but this is certainly what is, is happening, and you described it, Gilles, uh, in France, and you talked a little bit about Macron trying to push back, because I think Macron sees where this is going, where, they, where Islamic law, according to radicals, is going to be established in France, and school teachers will not say what they're not allowed to say at, at, at risk of death. Uh, well, I, you know, I was just, uh, I was just rereading um, uh, Foreign Minister Zarif's memoir, which, uh, regrettably, I, I don't think that many people have read. Uh, and I'm waiting I, for the movie. Myself. I'm waiting. I know I am waiting for the movie. He's he's gotten a little portly. I'm not sure he's gonna. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm not sure which actor should play him. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Uh, yeah. Well, he's gonna have to get rid of those tummy muscles. That uh, that. And I was just noting. I mean, I think he's actually being fairly honest. I mean, with all Iranian writing, uh, you always have to know, you know, what what parts true and what parts mendacious. But I think uh, Zarif is actually being honest. And, and that's why the Supreme Leader has repeatedly protected him from his critics when he talks about, you know, the Islamic Republic having, uh, you know, two missions. Uh, one is, you know, national welfare. But as important, in fact, Zarif says it's more important, is to support the ideological religious movement, the revolution of the Islamic Republic. And, uh, you know, the Iranians have much greater ambitions than you know, uh, uh, than a group like Al Qaeda, they're not the same. Uh, they, they, the Iranians have a you know a civilization uh, behind them. Uh, they have uh, extraordinary hubris too. So they're what they're aiming for is of a, a simply different league. That's why uh, one of the reasons they have a, a nuclear program, which, as we all know, is is pretty bloody advanced. I mean, I think with the Biden administration is really, I, I don't think they have any grand ambitions about integrating Iran uh, into a more, quote, normal network. I think Obama did. Uh, but I think that was sort of shot to hell uh, by what happened in Syria. Uh, and that is the area that I think most of the uh, Obama administration officials who are now senior Biden administration feels officials actually feel somewhat guilty about. I mean, I think we're we're looking at a straight out transaction here. Uh, I mean, the Iranians are going to successfully extort the Americans uh, out of billions and billions of dollars. And I think all the Biden administration wants is for this to get off the front burner for X period of time. And whether they get a nuke down the road, uh, that just simply isn't a primary concern. What is a primary concern is that they don't have to stare at a situation where, you know, enrichment goes to 60%. So I think that's all they're focusing on. I don't think they're focusing on any of that. I think the Democratic Party is addicted to arms control. And I think that the thinking about this ideologically, religiously, just isn't something they do. And to the extent that they do it, you know, they, they want to believe that, uh, you know, the Islamic Republic has run out of gas. I'd like to tie a few of the strands here. Um, 
Look, even if you cut a deal with the Iranians, you still have to have a legitimizing ideology or a worldview or perspective to make sense of it to, and, to, to, and to justify it. So I think what, what normally happens, uh, at least in the United States, I'm not sure if this is true in France, is that you know, we have our filters and we try to justify our behavior uh, based, on, based on these filters. So you know, in the case of, for instance, the neocons when it came to Iraq, we uh, thought of freedom and we, we, were, we, we were coming at Iraq in the same way we thought of Poland or the Czech Republic or Slovakia, you know, that these were people that were oppressed and they would rise up and they would side with the West because they wanted freedom, just like any human being does. And, and that became the ideology that legitimized the invasion in 2003. I think the Obama people and the Biden people come at uh, Islamism whether it's the, of the Iranian type or of the Muslim uh, Brotherhood Sunni variety, they basically conflate Islamism with leftist uh, ideologies and leftist movements. They basically think of Islamists as third world, um, you know, uh, revolutionary types who are really only about social justice and about getting rid of the colonial burden. And that Islamists as leftists don't actually have their own substantive and normative commitments that are rooted in a particular interpretation of Islam. In other words, they, they, because the Islamic stuff uh, in the Iranian uh, rhetoric or in the Muslim Brotherhood rhetoric is difficult to understand, it's difficult to really make sense of, they just get lumped as leftists. And so therefore, they, we can understand them, we can even sympathize with them and support them. Uh, which is what I think a lot of people in the Biden administration feel when they think of Iran. They don't see the Islamic and Islamist uh, dimension of the of this country and its project. They just see it as a kind of third world leftist kind of revolutionary mm -hmm. movement, no different from the FLN in Algeria back in the old days. Um, and and I think that blinker, that filter, uh, blinds us from seeing this other Islamist dimension. Uh, and, and also, at the same time, legitimizes and justifies why we can kind of deal with them. You know, there's at least one other subject I want to make sure we have time to, to and that's the, the Abraham Accords. A couple of reasons for that. One is, Bernard, that couldn't have happened without the Saudis saying, yeah, that's go ahead and go ahead and do that Bahrain and UAE. That's just fine. And I, and I could be wrong about this, but when I've talked to Saudis, not to mention Bahrainis and Emiratis, I've had a very strong sense that, you know, they don't really hate Israelis. It's, that's not, that's just, I mean, they don't. And they see Israel as standing up to an existential enemy uh, in, in Tehran. At the same time, when, while when Israelis look at what the Biden administration appears to want to do, which is to go back into the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as it's called, which will, uh, I think we all agree, give the Islam it, it will give Iran's rulers a what we call it FTD a patient pathway towards the acquisition of nuclear weaponry. They think we cannot rely on the U.S. We have to defend ourselves, and that and we have to figure out what that means and take action. We can't just sit around. So, what? Let me just ask you, Bernard. Do you agree with me on how I see the Saudis in regard to Israel and the Abraham Accords and Iran? Oh, and by the way, it's throwing this in too very recently, and I think as a result of the Biden administration's maneuvers with Iran, you're seeing a more open attitude, let me say, 
um, on the part of the Saudis towards Iran. They're looking to see, it would appear, if they can hedge their bets a, a little bit. But what do you make of it? What do you make of Saudi's calculations and, and Israel's calculations yeah. regarding Iran? Look, to be fair, I think that a lot of ordinary Saudis, the Saudi population still is very antagonistic when it comes to Israel and feel for the Palestinians. Maybe that's not the case with some of the elites. But let me give you the bigger, broader context. To think, the way, the way to understand Saudi Arabia is to make an analogy. You have a 55-year-old obese human being who has been told they're going to die of a heart attack in five years if they don't change radically the way they live. Saudi Arabia is confronted with a reality that unless domestically the country really radically diversifies and moves away from oil, it is going to hit a wall at 120 miles an hour and going to implode. I mean, and the regime will not survive. So the regime is operating in sort of the survival mode that I have to radically transform everything and every way in which I've operated in order to survive. And if that means making peace with Israel or changing my attitude towards Iran or whatever, you know, we will do it. I think it is a kind of desperation. And this is true also for the smaller countries, the, including the UAE, uh, that they realize that uh, the runway uh, with oil is, is getting shorter and shorter and they have to build up their own human capital, their internal capacities, their military capabilities, because America may not be there. But whatever the case is, they're not going to survive if they don't change. And that is what's driving, I think, the Abraham Accords and also much else besides in their behavior. I would like to follow up on what Bernie just said, because, you know, why is it that they signed the Abraham, not the Saudis, for reasons that we shall discuss in a minute, but why, why did the UAE and the others sign the Abraham Accords in 2020? Uh, you know, those of us who travel to the region know that, uh, for instance, in the Emirates, for, since, you know, a number of years, they had conferences uh, where you had uh, Israeli uh, ministers online from Je occupied Jerusalem who would deliver a speech and they would say, okay, guys, we had our differences, but now uh, let's uh, wrap it up and we have a common enemy, uh, Iran or Iran. And uh, But, you know, they would not make it public. Why is it that this suddenly uh, took place in 2020? I believe that just like um, Bernie just said, and I would like to follow up on that, uh they they you know they they were conscious that the 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 rentier oil model was a catastrophe it would destroy society it would destroy the regime it would unsettle the regime but you know they were in, in a sort of wait and see attitude as long as oil money was coming why bother after all we knew they knew that it would happen someday but you know not tomorrow now 2020 sent a shockwave because suddenly because of COVID-19 and because of Russia that said, you know, we're going to boost production, oil production at the OPEC plus meeting in Vienna on the 6th of March, so that we're going to throw, push the shale oil US producers out of the way. They thought that, you know, it would, okay, they would, oil would be a weapon in their arms again. Now suddenly, all the the barrel price came uh, to, down to minus thirty five, thirty something dollars in April, and with that, you know, I believe that they they knew that they could not 
procrastinate anymore, that this was time for action. Uh, now they had to engage, they had to, 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 uh, to deal with a new post oil policy. And their view was that after all, when you deal with renewables, when you deal with green hydrogen, when you deal with whatever, uh, the issue for them was that they should still be leading and uh, not, you know, not become that we should not become like Spain became after they exhausted the uh, the gold uh, rent from from uh, South America and the country went into decay. So as they still have some money, uh, they have sovereign funds, particularly the Emirates, and uh, we should now invest in the technologies of the future. Let's benefit from oil as much as we can, but we have now to, to you know, to, to make the step, the big step forward. And, you know, who has the technology in the Middle East? Particularly, as Bernie said, you know, the, the U.S. is unpredictable and why should we trust the Americans? And this sends, sends us back to, you know, what we started our conversation with. I mean, the Afghans trusted the Americans. They're going to be killed or they're going to be going to exile. Now, uh, we should make a deal with the Israelis because the Israelis have the, have the technology. They stood up to their enemies. And we can make a deal. And this is going to save our regimes. This is going to save uh, the Saudi system. This is going to save the, the, the Emirati system. And uh, this, is, this is the big challenge. And this is, uh, this is quite a pace they have been taking. Now, how does Iran fit into the picture is the big question mark. As you have noticed, under the auspices of Mr. Kazemi, uh, the Saudis and the Iranians started to to talk a couple a few a few days ago. Uh, to what extent are the Saudis and the and the Gulf Arabs uh, ready to uh, to be part and parcel of the global deal with Iran? Uh, do they believe that Iran is weakened to a point due to the sanctions, due the, to the pandemics, that they will have to come to terms? Uh, you know, there's talk, there's Zarif, and there's the Pazdaran, as uh, as uh, Ruol just mentioned. But uh, on the ground, the Iranians uh, do not fare very well. And uh, so do they have a choice? And, you know, I, I believe that there's a sort of uh, a, a trend to a much more sort of uh, real politic or realistic politics in the way of the Gulf Arabs. Uh, further away from uh, from ideology than was the case before. I mean, I, I just wanted to add one quick thing, and that is, I think the pivotal agreement here is American weakness. Uh, now, whether that is a reality or whether it's because the Americans uh, wish to be weak, we can have a debate about that. But the uh, I think that is the pivotal factor. In 2019, the Iranians uh, let loose uh, with cruise missiles and drones against the oil facilities at Big Cap and uh, Horais, and we did absolutely nothing. Uh, that the American hegemonic position in the Persian Gulf, I think, ended at that moment. And uh, I think that was a huge factor uh, for the Saudis, for the Emiratis, everybody uh, in the Gulf of reorienting uh, their strategic calculations. I also think to complement that, the Israelis have been blowing to pieces uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, in Syria, 
uh, for the last, you know, three years. They've been really pounding them. Uh, Foreign Minister Zarif might not have known it, but everybody else did. <laughs> uh, and uh, they fundamentally changed the calculations of the Revolutionary Guard Corps and how they uh, deploy uh, in Syria. Uh, you know, everybody paid attention to that, uh, that here you have one power, not obviously nowhere near the strength of the United States, that is demonstrating that Mahkwalatik actually does have a profound effect on the Islamic Republic. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have the Americans who uh, just seem to be uh, wanting to retrench uh, throughout, throughout the region. It's inevitable that the Israelis are going to rise. Uh, now, whether the uh, Gulf Arabs actually look at Israel as a possible savior, uh, that I don't know. If I had to bet, I would say that MBS actually, because he did nothing either after they blew up uh, the uh, uh, damaged oil facilities, uh, I would bet that he goes belly up, uh, that he is unwilling uh, to, to take on the Iranians in any measurable way, and that uh, he'll depend upon others to do that, but a head-on confrontation I suspect he believes the regime, uh, the Saudi family, could not withstand that confrontation. I suspect he, he might be right if he thinks that way. You know, this this may be my, my last question because we're kind of running out of time. But Bernard, when the, the Biden administration seems quite a bit less friendly to the Saudis than the Trump administration was. And I kind of wonder when the Biden administration is making these kinds of decisions about the Saudis um, or deciding that the Houthis don't need to be designated any longer as as terrorists, and if they, we do that, I'm sure they'll be very appreciative and will change the behavior. But they not come to someone like you, who has studied this for years, and say, "Here's what we're thinking, and you want to give us some advice," or, or are they just kind of, you know, flying by the seat of their pants? I mean, look, they have not come to me, uh, but I do respect some of the people that 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 are there, like uh, Tim Lunderking. Um, a very good man. Very yeah, good. A good man. And 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 uh, I I should say I I think that um, you know the, the way the Biden administration dealt with MBS and with Saudi Arabia was basically to I think throw to their own base their domestic base uh, uh, a base that basically wanted to uh, have MBS sanctioned and and the administration decided no that's not gonna work that's not gonna happen because the relationship with Saudi Arabia is just simply too important and this man is likely to be the king for the next 50 years uh, and we're not going to ruin our relationship with that country because of uh, because of that um, and I think they made the right determination they came to the right uh, conclusion that Saudi Arabia is simply too important um, I think MBS understands that uh, and and is willing to go along um, so so far, they haven't really uh, ruptured the relationship uh, in any in any kind of uh, serious way. In fact, I think what they're trying to do is to build up institutional connections between the Saudis, the intelligence services, the um, you know the energy ministry, etc., between uh, the U.S. and Saudi. And I think that's very good. In fact, I, I think that the highly personalized relationship that. Uh, President Trump had developed with MBS was not necessarily good either for the U.S. or for Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, you know, on on how they've managed the Saudis, I think I would give them a pretty good points, uh, a pretty high high score. I think though the Yemen situation is a real kind of uh, problem for them because they thought that it would be easily solved by just simply putting pressure on Saudi Arabia, not realizing that in fact. It full-blown civil war had been before the Saudis got involved. And it's not likely to end even if the Saudis end their involvement in Yemen. 
which is unlikely to happen. So um, it's a good do a dose of reality for, for, for the Biden administration. Well, look, in partial summary, I'm just going to say I think it's it's clear and I, and I think disappointing that so many of America's political leadership doesn't understand either the challenge or the threat of jihadism, either in its kind of most primitive and violent expressions, al-Qaeda and the Taliban, or the more sophisticated Khomeinist model. But I do think our listeners understand a little bit better based on this conversation. So with that, let me say thanks, Gilles. Thanks, Bernard. Uh, thanks, Ruel, and thanks to all of you for being with us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.